Good morning. Uh, could we just greet each other once again? Uh, I think there are a number of people who uh, are new here, you might not know. Could just uh, look out for people that you haven't met or seen or haven't seen for a while. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning from our welcoming committee. Uh, currently, uh, we are in a series called The Portraits of Grace in the Old Testament. And in this series, what we're actually doing is we're looking at how stories in the Old Testament, how these stories fit into the meta story, how they fit into the, the meta narrative of the entire Bible. Okay. And, and this is based on the premise that the Old Testament is not a collection of short, standalone stories that teach really good morals at the end. Um, you know, the Old Testament is not a more religious version of Aesop's fables. But instead, the Old Testament is a part of God's larger story of redemption. You know, as it's often said, all of history, all of history is his story. In other words, all of history from the beginning of time that the Old Testament records, all of it is a story of how God creates, redeems, and renews. And so, you know, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at these stories in the Old Testament that seem random, but as we take a deeper look into it, we can see how these stories project forward and how they tie into the greater story of the gospel of Jesus. Now, today, we're in Ezekiel. And what I want to do today is very simple. I want to do three things. First, I'm going to explain what's going on in the text. And then next, I'm going to talk about how this text anticipates the climax, the coming of Jesus. And then finally, we'll end with just a brief statement on what, what all of this means for us. Okay? So first, I'll explain what's going on, how it anticipates the climax, and finally, what it means for us. So Ezekiel 40 and Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel, what's going on here, uh, the, the time or the setting, the background, is probably one of the lowest points in the history of redemption, right? In the history of redemption, you have some really low points. You have low points like the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, you have low points like the golden calf episode in Exodus. And here in Ezekiel, you have another really, really low point. You have the exile. Now, for us to get a sense of what the Israelites are going through, uh, I want you to think about all of the really low moments in your life. Okay? Think about all of the really low, low moments that you've experienced. I mean, for me, as I was thinking about the Israelites, I thought of two moments. One is rather light, the other is sort of heavy, but I thought of two really low moments in my life. The first low moment I thought of was when I was just a little child. And uh, as a child, one of the greatest joys that we had uh, was uh, collecting pennies, dimes, nickels, and collecting all of this, the small change, and going to the corner store and buying a bag of chips, right? This was back then when chips were sold for 25 cents. Some of you might be a little bit older, you know, when it was sold for much less than that. But, you know, 25 cents was the, the worth, the cost for a bag of chips. And I remember the joy of collecting nickels, pennies, and dimes and going to the bodega, what we call the corner store, going there and, and buying a bag of chips. One, one particular day, I remember I collected enough to go to the corner store, store and I picked out my favorite bag of chips, Lay's Original Potato Chips because I'm an original kind of guy. You know? I, I love original, right? So I went, 
uh, got 25 cents, gave it to the man, picked up a bag, and I walked through outside and I opened it. And when I opened it, it was just a bag of air. And nothing inside of it. And at that moment, I was sort of struck. I wondered, what just happened? So I went back in, I told the man, hey, there's nothing in here. And you know, he told me with this really thick accent, you know, I have to go write a letter to Frito-Lays. And I'm just a little kid. I'm not going to write a letter. And so you know, I go back outside, and I stare at this bag of chips. And you know, I'm wondering, how could something like this happen to me? You know, and I have this small mini uh, existential crisis. What is this? It's a bag that's filled with air that I just paid a quarter for. And it, for some reason, that moment was sort of a, oh my goodness, this is really low. I feel like a loser, right? <laughs> the, second, the second moment that I recall, which was a really low moment, this is much more serious, was uh, when I was in college, there was a close family, a family that we were really close with. Um, and they were sort of the, the picture-perfect family. The, the husband was a successful architect. Uh, the wife was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, they had two really beautiful young daughters. And they were both, you know, both parents were serving at the Sunday school. And we were all, uh, you know, we, we loved that family. We were so close with them. We spent lots of time together. But all of a sudden, the, the wife started to complain. Uh, she felt depressed and she felt like she was being neglected, and she had thoughts that her husband was having an affair. We didn't listen to her. We thought, what are you talking about? You're over-exaggerating. Get over it, get over it. Your life is great. One, uh, one evening, while, while listening to the news, we hear that um, that, that couple and their family, they had gone to Bear Mountain, which is uh, a mountain up uh, in, in the New York, New Jersey area. And while the husband went out of the car just to take photos, the wife and the passenger side, she put the car, their, their Honda Odyssey, she put it on uh, drive, and uh, the car rolled down 10 feet uh, into the rocks, and she died immediately with her daughters in the car. And when we heard this as a family, we were in utter shock. It was plastered all over the daily news. Uh, in fact, this man had a really positive influence in my life. And when our family was struck with that news, for some reason, everything was shaken. We had no foundations. I woke up the next day, went to school, lived my life, but it felt like something was misaligned. There was no footing, there was no foundation. It felt like this world was just off. And it was so low. It was a low moment in my life. Those are the two moments that come to mind where I just felt so low. You know, for us to really get a sense of what the Israelites were going through, you know, we have to probably think of all the low moments that we faced, whether it's low moments through rejection, fear, relationship issues, financial struggles, loneliness, emotional distress. And we have to take all of those low moments and we have to combine that into one. We have to multiply that lowness. And for us to really understand the Israelites, what's going on here, we actually have to expand that lowness to an entire nation. So it's not just you who's in a state of lowness, but it's an entire nation. And you need to extend, extend that for a quarter of a century, for about 25 years. That's what's going on. You know, some of us know quite well what depression feels like. 
but I don't think anyone here knows what it's like when everything and everyone around you is in a state of depression. But that's what the Israelites are going through. That's the setting. That's the background. You know, the passage tells us that it was 25 years since the exile. In other words, 25 years ago, the Babylonians, this strong, powerful nation came, they killed off most of the men, and they dragged the women and children and the young intellectual men off. They dragged them into Babylon as slaves, as war slaves. The passage in in, in Ezekiel 40 tells us that it was 14 years ago since their beloved city with fortified walls was utterly destroyed and burned to the ground. The temple was ransacked and home was just a distant memory. And the only thing that was left was debris from the ruins. You know, Ezekiel was a time of hopelessness, of lifelessness, and godlessness. God was no longer there. At this low point in the history of redemption, God, he decides to bring the prophet Ezekiel to Jerusalem. He brings him to Jerusalem so that Ezekiel can see once again with his own eyes the hopelessness and the lifelessness that filled the entire city. And there, God gives the prophet this vision. Now, this vision is quite long. It starts from 40, and it goes all the way to chapter 48, and it's one of the most... um, you know, enigmatic visions that we have. Uh, It's quite puzzling, but let me just, it's long, so let me just summarize um, very shortly. So this vision that Ezekiel receives is a vision of a grand temple at the top of a mountain outside the city. And this temple is not only grand, it's not only big and magnificent, but it's also precise. Now, what happens in this vision is there's this sort of tour guide who goes along with Ezekiel, right? He takes Ezekiel around, and he shows him everything that's inside the temple. And as they go around touring this temple, this tour guide, he has in his hand a measuring rod or a measuring stick. And at every chamber, every room, every crevice, every wall, he takes a measurement And he says, this is how big this wall is. This is how big the threshing floor is. This is how big the wing is and the chambers are. They measure everything. Now, as they're going about looking at this grand temple, there are two things to note, two really important things. In chapter 43, when Ezekiel is touring the temple, all of a sudden he sees the glory of God coming from the east back. And the glory of God enters into the temple And the glory of God fills this temple. It's this idea that God has returned. But the second thing to note is what happens in chapter 47, the chapter that we read this morning. When Ezekiel finishes the tour, he goes to the entrance of the temple. And at the entrance of the temple, he notices that water is coming out. So imagine the entrance of the temple, that the door is shut, but from beneath the water, you know, through that crack between the floor and the water, uh, floor and the door, water is starting to pour out. And Ezekiel wonders, what is this? As he goes around, he sees that this water that's coming from inside the temple, it starts to flow down to the stairs, into the courts, and eventually it goes outside the temple, down the mountain. 
Ezekiel and this tour guide, they go out and they, they follow this water. They follow the stream to see where it goes. It's headed eastward. They follow this water and it gets deeper and deeper. At first, it's ankle deep. And then the water gets knee deep. Then it's waist deep. And then the water is so deep that they can swim inside of it. And after a while, the rapids become too strong. They have to get out. The two, Ezekiel and this tour guide, they go back to the bank of the river and they look at this river that's flowing out of the temple down the mountain towards, e towards the east. And they see that as a result of this river that's flowing, trees on both sides of the river start to come to life. You know, we have to understand that this river is passing through the, Ju the Judean desert. But as this river is passing through the desert, these trees start to come to life, these lush green trees. And eventually, this river flows, flows, and it goes into the sea. But it's not just any sea. It's actually the Dead Sea. I don't know if you guys uh, have been to the Dead Sea or have seen it, but here's a, here's a really nice picture of it. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on the surface of the planet, about 1,500 feet below sea level. And it's about eight or nine times uh, saltier uh, than the ocean. In other words, it, this, this, this sea is so deep and so, so dense, there's so much salt in it, that there is no marine life in it. It's a dead sea. But when this river that comes from the temple flows into this dead sea, what happens is life appears inside this sea. This sea becomes fresh, and all of a sudden, this sea is filled with life. All sorts of sea creatures and fish of every kind start to swarm inside this dead sea. In fact, there's so much life in this sea that this sea becomes a fisherman's paradise. Fishermen are there casting their nets because this sea that was once dead is now filled with life. And Ezekiel, he notices around this once dead sea, these trees start to appear. These trees that bear fruit in every season, every month. And he notices that these trees never wither. There's never a season when these trees, their leaves fall, but they are alive all season long. Even their leaves are useful. Their leaves are used as medicine. This is the vision that Ezekiel receives in a land that was a desert, in a land that was desolate, in a land that was filled with death. There's this river that flows from the temple, and it brings life, it brings healing, it brings abundance. You know, I want you to think for a moment right now what you know, what the people of Israel have been going through in Ezekiel. I mean, just think about the hopelessness of the situation, right? It's been over 25 years since a laughter was heard on those streets. It's been over 14 years that the people had a place that they called home, and God was nowhere to be found. This whole area, this whole situation was lifeless. It was hopeless. It was godless. The entire situation reeked of death. But God, in this moment, he gives to this lone prophet a vision that's filled with life. 
Ezekiel receives a vision that's filled with life. Now, Ezekiel, at some point, after he had received this vision, he wakes up. And he's uh, faced with the reality once again that his family are still slaves, their streets are still barren, and death is everywhere. Ezekiel had this vision of life, but he wakes up and he realizes nothing has changed. Everything is still the same. And the prophet goes on living his life without anything really changing. In fact, hundreds of years go by, hundreds of years. You know, of course, there are small glimpses of hope throughout the way. You know, the people return from exile. They build a small, small little temple, but really there's no life. The people are still slaves, and this time to a new world power, the Romans. But one afternoon, hundreds of years after Ezekiel's vision, in fact, probably 586 years after uh, Ezekiel's vision, there's this man named Jesus, who's who's a son of a carpenter. And on this one afternoon, this man, he stands up in the, middle of a temp- in, in the middle of the temple during the Jewish festival of weeks. And he utters these words. He says this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You see, this time when Jesus said this wasn't just any random day, but it was a Jewish festival of weeks. In fact, this time was a time when the entire nation remembered the vision of Ezekiel, and they placed their hope in this life-giving water that was going to flow from the temple and bring everything back to life again. But here, this nobody stands up. Here, this This man that no one really knew, Jesus, he stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Notice what Jesus says here. Look, I have this really cool function. I think some of you have seen it, but look. Jesus says this, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. The scriptures never said this. There's nowhere in the Bible where it said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. No, we've just read it. The scriptures in Ezekiel 47 says, out of the temple will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is actually changing what the Bible says. You know, not only that, but you know, Jesus earlier, in another desert, he meets the Samaritan woman who has come out to draw water from a well. And this is what Jesus says to her in that instance. Everyone who drinks of this water, in other words, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, Jesus seems to be talking crazy You know, Jesus always seems to be talking crazy. How is Jesus going to give springs of eternal life? How does rivers flow from his belly? How does living water come from him? That's not what the prophecy said. That's not what the vision was about. Well, you know, sometime later, 
because Jesus continued to talk this nonsense, changing what the Bible was saying. He was deemed a lunatic and a heretic. And after being charged, Jesus, he's taken to a small mountain outside the city. And there they crucify him to the tree to silence him. Now, as he's being crucified, he's and you know, as he's being crucified, the soldiers notice that he has died. So just to make sure what they do is, uh, a soldier nearby, he takes a spear and he pierces his side. And one of the witnesses that, uh, witness that were there, he recalls, he bears witness that when the soldier pierced his side, out of his side flowed blood and water. Jesus on a tree, blood and water flowing down from a hill, a mountain, outside the city, and it flows and flows and flows, and it gives life. You see, do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on in the Bible? You see, God has given to a hopeless and lifeless people a vision of hope and life. But you see, this vision was about a temple that gave life to the dead. But in actuality, this vision was really about God himself coming to be with his people. And God, as he comes to be with his people, he pours out his life. And in doing so, as he pours out his life, he gives to his people rivers of living water so that all who drink will live, so that all who taste will live. Last week, I uh, shared this, um, this graphic with you. This is you know, a graphic that um, you know, most, if not all, stories follow this, this narrative arc, where there's a beginning, there's a conflict, a rising action, a climax, falling action, and then there's a resolution. Most, if not all, stories follow this pattern. And uh, we talked about how the Bible follows this pattern. How, you know, it, it begins with creation, there's conflict, the fall. The Old Testament is this rising action towards the climax, which is Jesus. And then we go down to the resolution, which is the restoration of all things. Right? And, you know, today, uh, you know, we talked about Ezekiel. And Ezekiel falls around this, this point. Ezekiel is pretty close to the coming of Jesus. Right? And, and, and in Ezekiel 47, we talked about this, this vision of this river flowing with living water, this water that gives life. But, you know, if we go back to the beginning of the story, you know, the story begins in a garden. It begins in paradise. And in this garden, there are four rivers that are feeding this garden and giving it life. Very shortly, we read that there's a conflict, and as a result, Adam and Eve, they're exiled. They're kicked out of the garden. And then as the story continues on, we find in Ezekiel 47 this, this vision of the rivers of living, of living, living water that, that brings life. And of course, as we talked about at the climax, Jesus, Jesus himself says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. 
Well, how does this entire story end? At the end, we get to Revelation 21. Sorry, I don't have it up for you here, but let me read it. It says this. Then he showed me the rivers of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. When we get to the end of the story, we find that this river is flowing from the throne room of God. And as this river flows on each side, there are the trees of life bearing fruit and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. So we find here that this vision that Ezekiel receives is not just some arbitrary vision, but it follows the story of what God is going to do of how he's going to pour out life and bring the dead back to life. All of scripture coming together, telling us this one story of how God gives us life, how he does so climactically in his son who pours out his life for us. You know, we have to ask as we conclude, what does all of this have to do for us? What does all of this have to do with us? Well, I just want to mention two things. Okay, first, I think it's important that we find ourselves in the story. Where are we? Where are we? Well, in this story of God's, you know, God's redemption, we're, we're not, something's going on here, but yes. In this story, we're not here. We're not where Ezekiel was, but we're actually here. In other words, we fall into the part of the story where the cross is actually behind us. The cross is, has actually happened. And now we are on the other side where the climax has already ended. You see, there's a huge difference between Ezekiel, the hope that God gave to him, and the hope that God gives to us. You know, our hope is not in a vision, but our hope is in a Savior. Our hope is in a God who became flesh, who actually came, died, and rose again. Our hope is in the past. It's not in some ambiguous future vision. You know, as an example, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, they were all over the news this week. And those of you who follow, um, those of you who are Mustonians or, you know, uh, follow uh, that, that cultish leader. Uh, you know, they were, they were all over the news, and it's because Elon Musk, he, he tweeted that he had uh, secured funding and he was going to take the company private. And after that, the stock just soared. I mean, this was in, in April. April, you know, Musk, Tesla just dropped. Uh, people were shorting uh, the company, and they said, no, there's no way it's going to succeed. And, you know, Tesla has, up to this point, has def um, defied all, all odds. It has beaten all the odds. You know, uh, traditional investors are baffled by Tesla because the company's not profitable, it's not producing enough, uh, it's in debt, it doesn't meet any deadlines, and now the employees are all complaining. But people are still investing. The company's, the stock is going up. And investors are saying, listen, the only thing that Musk is selling is a vision. The only thing that people are buying is this vision, this pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by vision of the future. 
and people are buying it. Now, who knows if Tesla is going to be all that Elon Musk he promises. But you know, the hope of the gospel that we have is certainly not like this. The hope that we have is not in some business plan or future vision that hasn't been realized yet. But the hope that we have is in a Savior who has already given his life so that we can live. We are living on the other side of the cross. It has already happened. You know, it's like this. You know, after your Eagles won earlier this year, after you guys won the Super Bowl, many of you guys had lots of hopes in the victory parade, right? It's not like you didn't know that they were going to have the parade. You knew that they were going to have the parade. Maybe you didn't know when or how and the details of the parade, but you had hope in a parade that was going to happen because they had already won. See, it's different when you say before the season starts, oh, I hope to go to the Super Bowl parade when you haven't even won. You see, but for Christians, when we hope in life, when we hope in eternal life, this hope is grounded in the victory at the cross and the grave. It is grounded in something that has already happened and has already secured it. Our hope in eternal life is as secure as, as our hope that the sun will rise the next day. It has happened. And now we can place our hope in it. The second thing that I just want to point out is this. I want you to just uh, think about this vision. and Think about this vision that's, that's overflowing with life. You know, when Jesus says, I have come to give you life, Jesus isn't talking about mere existence. And I've said this on, number, on a, a number of occasions, but Jesus, he didn't come so that we can survive, but he came so that we could thrive. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give us a full life. But you know, if I can just be frank for a moment, I find that this life is extremely rare in Christians today. You know, Christians are characterized more by death than life, pessimism more than hope, decay more than activity and vitality. You know, Christians are more life-sucking than life-giving, like zombies, dead but alive and sucking life. You know, we know what this is like in smaller ways, don't we? We're awake, but we feel like we're sleeping. We're exercising, but we're exhausted. We're full, but we're not satisfied. We're rested, but we're still so tired. We're studying, but we're not growing in knowledge. We're working, but we're not producing. We are alive, but we feel dead. You know, have you noticed that children, children hate to sleep, and they wake up as early as possible? You know, one of the worst possible summer jobs that anyone can have is a camp counselor. I don't know if you've ever worked as a summer camp counselor, but it's the worst because children don't want to sleep, and they'll wake up as soon as they can. You know, I mean, they do that because life is enjoyable. It's because children are filled with life. As opposed to adults, you and I, we'll sleep at any chance, we'll take naps at any opportunity, and we'll dread the morning because life reeks of death. Viktor Frankl said this, 
Uh, I, I don't have it up here. Uh, Viktor Frankl said this, evermore people today have the means to live, yet no meaning to live for. You know, you know, there are moments in my life when things get really low and stressful and I feel like, you know, I'm, you know, I feel like, you know, just failing. Um, what I tend to do is I, I just want to sleep because sleeping is the closest thing to death. And every time that moment sinks in where I just want to be as close as possible to death because life is difficult, I'm reminded that when I get on my knees and I go to the source of life, when I go to Jesus himself, I am filled with life. You know, the gospel rescues us from mere survival. The gospel rescues us from a life of just getting by and surviving. A life that's absent of hope and meaning. The gospel instills in us life. It gives us meaning. It gives us purpose. Friends, the life that Jesus promises is not one where we just go on surviving, but it's one where we go on thriving, a life that gives life. I just want to read to you this one final quote from Jeremiah 2.13. This is God as he condemns his people. He says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug their own fountain, Broken fountains that can hold no water. So this morning, I want to invite everyone here back to the source of life. Those of you who are dead but want to live, I invite you to the source of life, Jesus. Those of you who are alive but feel dead, I invite you back to Christ through whom we receive the rivers of living water. I invite you back to the source so that we may live. Let's pray.